0: Laura and I feature True Crime Stories from Colorado on this podcast. So just a little bit of housekeeping before I get into our historical murder today. Um, I do have an Instagram. If you go on there for updates and images, I have pretty much just images about every single case that I do, updates about when I'm going to have episodes, if there's a delay, that kind of stuff. And I promise I really won't be doing any memes on there. I'm not much of a meme person. And I'm a little sick of seeing the same stuff just posted over and over again all over the place. Um, If you like the show, go on iTunes and review it. Please keep in mind that this show is written and produced by me, that there's no podcast network, no budget, no production. Um, So just keep that in mind when you go on to review it. I'm always down to hear everybody's um, opinion about what's going on and any suggestions And I'm getting real excited to listen to everyone's uh, suggestions about different cases that I should do that they have heard of or that they know of or that they're associated with. So keep it coming, guys. I'm really excited to have such a boost of listenership this month. Um, There's about 600 new listeners, actually. And I hope you guys stick around and enjoy the show. But if you like the show, please go on and rate and review it on iTunes. That would be a huge favor to me. And speaking of the show, I'll get to it. Um, I have an historical murder for you today that sounds like something out of a Greek tragedy, to be honest. This story is also a bit of a two-in-one because the very beginning of the story involves the infamous Eddie Ives, who's one of Denver's most notorious burglars. On November twenty-second, 1928... Officer Harry Ohl was on patrol with Officer Bob Evans as they searched a party house on Curtis Street in Denver. Bootlegging was super common at this time, and party houses sprung up everywhere that supplied booze to people who needed it. Hiding in this party house was Eddie Ives, and his partner in crime for that day, a 45-year-old ex-convict named Henry Hill. As the officers searched the home, Eddie Ives hid under a bed. Eddie was a notoriously tiny man, and he weighed only about 80 pounds, and it was rumored that he was so good at burgling because he could actually fit through the mail slots by front doors. In 1898, Eddie was sent to the State Industrial School for Boys, and later to the State Reformatory in Buena Vista, and by 1906, he had a three-year term in Oregon for robbery, and in 1914, he was in jail in Salt Lake City for burglary. In 1915, he was sent to Colorado State in Canyon City for robbery, and he escaped from there in 1920, burgled again, and returned for three more years. And now, as Eddie hid under the bed in this party house, Officer Harry Oll approached, lifted the sheet, and was shot dead by Eddie Ives, who shot wildly into the house. Also hit in the arm was Officer Bob Evans and the owner of the house, Mrs. Lavinia Reese, who was wounded. So as Bob Evans stumbled out onto Curtis Street with his bleeding arm, Eddie Ives fled into the night. Eddie was later discovered hiding at his mother's house, and he was arrested for the murder of Harry Ole. He would later be tried and hung for this crime, and his execution would go down in history as one of the most botched executions in the history of the United States. Because of Eddie's size, he was too small to actually have his neck break when being hung, so at first he fell, then was hung again, where it took him nearly half an hour to suffocate to death. So to get back to the actual story for today... After Eddie Ives shot into the room and wounded Bob Evans in the arm, Bob stumbled outside and tried to find help for Harry Oll, who unfortunately was already dead. So as the body of Harry Oll was being processed, Bob Evans was laying in the Denver General Hospital recovering from his wound inflicted by Eddie Ives. As he lay in the bed on November 27, 1928, a nurse named Forrest King came to his bedside she placed the revolver against the head of Bob and shot him straight through the brain, killing him instantly. She then laid on the bed next to him and shot herself in the chest over her left breast. Her gunshot ended up missing her heart and any vital organs and she survived, meaning she would have to answer to very puzzled family members and witnesses of this crime. During the subsequent investigation, police learned that Forrest King and Bob Evans knew each other more than Forrest would let on, and that their dramatic romance had actually begun eleven years prior. Little did they know what twists and turns lay ahead as this ridiculous story would unfold. So as I said, Forrest and Bob had met eleven years prior, and they had this immediate and intense romance when they had met. The relationship cooled soon after, however, when Bob went away to fight during World War One, and then returned only to marry another woman named Lillian Herzl in 1923. It wasn't until five years later when Bob was shot that he ended up in a ward that Forrest was working in as a nurse, and she glimpsed her former lover yet again. Another patient in the ward had indicated that Forrest had gone and sat by the bedside of Bob a number of times and talked with him in hushed tones, carrying on lengthy conversations over several nights. Forrest's twin sister, Mrs. Clarice Hansen, came to Forrest's defense stating that her sister must not have been in the right state of mind when she shot Bob and that the torture within her soul was far too strong to smother. She also added that Forrest had been very unhappy for some time after losing Bob to another woman and losing the only man that she had ever loved. Additionally, police found a note addressed to Bob at 2 a.m. the morning he was shot. It was from Forrest. Dearest Bob, you belong to me, and I cannot go on any longer living without you, and you shall not go on. In another note that Forrest wrote anticipating her own suicide, she requested that she be buried next to Bob. While some people deny that they thought Bob ever had anything to do with Forrest, his own wife ended up being very aware of Forrest's presence in Bob's life. Mrs. Lillian Evans, Bob's wife, would often walk down 16th Street and see Forrest, who she said was usually mumbling to herself with a wild look in her eyes. Forrest's sister countered this claim that Forrest was wandering around the streets mumbling to herself by saying that Bob Evans had been toying with her sister for years, dangling the possibility of marriage in front of her, among other psychological abuse that he had repeatedly stated in letters that he was unhappy in his marriage, and that he was desperate to get back with Forrest, only to balk at every chance he got to do so. So during the attempted untangling of this dramatic love affair, police learned even more about Bob Evans. He had actually been previously married, and, for years, had been living with a fake name. His real name was J.C. Bobzine, and he was from Iowa. He would later state that he changed his name from a German-sounding name to Bob Evans, following the prejudice toward Germans after World War I. In Iowa, he had abandoned a wife and two sons and left them penniless 15 years prior to being shot by Forrest. The wife he left in Iowa had eventually been granted a divorce, but the marriage to her coincided with the bigamist marriage he then began in Denver after leaving Iowa, marrying a woman named Cicely Pearl Lewis. That relationship quickly dissolved, and Cicely moved to California soon after. So this widow of Bob Evans, not yet a week out from the murder of her husband by Forrest King, was stunned by these revelations. However, she remained calm, and she procured a lawyer. No sooner had she done that than the charges came down that she and Bob Evans had not actually been living together for two years. At one point, Lillian herself had filed for a divorce from Bob, citing extreme and repeated acts of cruelty and his dissolving of a garage business on Spear Boulevard, but she later withdrew her divorce request and they remained married. Bob Evans was laid to rest by the same reverend who had married Lillian and Bob. Lillian watched Bob lowered into the earth. As the reverend said, life is a twisted skein. With Bob on the ground and his affairs partially uncovered, attention turned to Forrest. Forrest had also been married before to a man named Dr. Bert C. Heiner. Their marriage was very short, but it was learned that she had given birth to a baby in 1913 and that it had unfortunately died soon after. Shortly before seeing Evans in the hospital, she had been planning a marriage to an electrician named J.H. Daniels. She had even purchased a new wardrobe of accessories in anticipation, including dresses, shoes, and hats. She selected a dark blue wedding dress and blue pumps and a blue coat lined with golden possum fur, and she would state that she bought blue because she believed the phrase, The bride, married in blue, will have a spouse, ever true. The marriage plans ended quickly and she saw Bob Evans lying in the hospital ward and her obsession with him just came roaring back to her. During the weeks following her murder of Bob, she recovered in the hospital from her own wound and would respond to any questioning from officials and even family members with hysterical sobbing as she buried her face into her pillow. The trial of Forrest King began on February 25th, 1929. More than 200 spectators showed up and picnicked on the lawn of the courthouse downtown. Flappers, society matrons, and even the prosecutor's wife showed up to lounge and watch Forrest. Forrest entered the courthouse wearing a dark blue coat lined with golden possum, likely the same coat that she bought to be married in. 26-year-old Forrest King entered the courtroom looking gaunt and frail as well. She immediately sat down and she buried her face right into her hands. The defense for Forrest would bring in several experts and witnesses to attest the fact that Forrest suffered from a form of insanity known as melancholia brought on by her unfortunate love affair with Bob Evans. The defense also brought up the fact that Forrest was abandoned by her first husband and that her baby died at five months, causing her a lot of trauma. Additionally, they presented evidence that Bob proposed to her in 1917, and that he even gave her an engagement ring, constantly reminding her that he wished to marry her. Yet at this same time, he was already married to his first wife and couldn't marry anybody else. So when World War I started, Bob told Ferris that he was going to San Francisco to enlist and made Ferris promise that she wouldn't give herself up before he returned. They wrote love letters back and forth constantly during this time, which was evidenced by all the love letters they produced. Bob then soon returned to Denver and lied, saying that the Navy had actually rejected him. So to keep up this charade and this whole brand new heartbreak, he inexplicably did enlist in the Navy and was shipped out and ghosted Forrest at this time, who was stunned and depressed. The defense went on to say that in 1919, Bob left the war and returned to Denver and found Forrest King yet again and made more promises to her. He stated he wished to marry her, but that he didn't have enough money saved up yet for them. So after four years of this nonsense and Bob toying with Forrest, she drove by his house in 1923 and saw that he was now married to a woman named Lillian. Bob told Farris that he was forced into the marriage and that he intended to leave after their first baby was born because Lillian was pregnant. During this time, evidence of many letters Bob wrote to Farris were presented where he continued the ruse that he was interested in marrying her. Soon enough, though, Farris learned that there was no baby at all, and she realized Bob was never leaving Lillian. She tried to put the entire ordeal behind her, and she visited Texas for several months to care for a patient, and her family indicated that she returned to Denver in much better spirits. And then, in this cold twist of fate, Bob landed on a bed in the ward that Forrest was working at in 1928. Upon seeing Forrest, Bob Evans immediately began toying with her yet again. He told Forrest that he still loved her and wanted to leave Lillian, He tried to persuade her into beginning an affair, which she rejected. In her despondence and melancholia, Forrest purchased a gun from a pawn shop on Larimer Street, wrote the two notes, and shot Bob in the head as he lay asleep in bed, then shot herself. The defense also called Forrest's family members and friends, who testified that while in the hospital covering from the gunshot wound to her chest, she tried to commit suicide again by trying to jump from the window, but was stopped. A friend from work, a registered nurse named Bula Braincamp, which is the most amazing name I've ever heard, indicated that when she hired Forrest to care for her sick father, that she believed she was deeply troubled and possibly insane. The prosecution countered this with the point that it was strange to let a person that she thought was insane care for her father. Another family friend came to testify to the insanity of Forrest by telling the story that when Forrest's brother died, she had heard a scream from the house and ran over to find Forrest in the bed of her dead brother, embracing him and yelling that they should have taken her instead of him. Later in the trial, Forrest was made to expose herself to show the jury the scar from the gunshot to her chest. The defense also attempted to present all the letters Bob Evans had written to Forrest over the years to keep their relationship dangling in front of her, and she attempted to grab them away while sobbing, proclaiming them to be hers. The defense read one such letter, which clearly tries to gut Forrest with the memory of her dead baby. "'I don't hardly know what to do with myself this morning, so will have to write you and wait until the spirit moves me to see if I will go anywhere.' Heard a new song, Cuddle Up a Little Closer, Hubby Dear. I sure thought of my darling, for I knew she would say that. They also had a picture of a young couple that had a little baby. Whenever I see a little baby, I always think of you. How I wish for your sake that your, our, little girl was alive. It would be such company for you while Daddy is away. I have only one desire now. And that is to do things for you and your folks, but mostly for you, darling. You, dear, I love above anything on this earth. Love and kisses, your big boy, Bob. Bob Evans, ladies and gentlemen. And finally, Forrest herself was called to the stand, but before doing so, she threw herself down onto the pile of Bob Evans' blood-stained clothes sitting near the stand that were presented as evidence, and she clutched the clothing to her chest and screamed. In no surprise, the prosecution called only a couple of doctors to the stand to state that they thought that she was just being dramatic and wasn't insane. And the prosecution rested on that low point. A jury of 12 men deliberated for 24 hours and found Forrest King to be sane. She was sentenced to life in prison at Canyon City. Forrest went completely pale and Forrest's mother cried out in the courtroom that Bob had killed her once and now she was resigned to suffer a living death. Women came around from all over to rally for Forrest who they believed had been played to her absolute limit, especially in an era when women were very dependent on men. A member of the National Women's Party said that she was sorry any woman was so foolish as to commit murder and that Forrest seemed like an object for pity. Others argued that Forrest didn't need a jail sentence, that she needed hospital care for mental health. However, others, mostly men, came out in support of the sentence, saying that they were happy to see a woman being treated the same as a man in the same position. 39-year-old Forrest was transferred to Canyon City on February 27, 1930. She became prisoner number 15495. And a month prior to her arrival, Eddie Ives had slowly strangled to death in the gallows, and his hanging spectacle was the beginning of the end of hanging as a form of execution in Colorado. It continued on for a few more executions, and then began the era of the gas chamber, which, as we would find out, had a lot of its own problems. So, some of you might be happy to know that Forrest didn't spend long in prison, In February 1934, her life sentence was actually commuted by Governor Ed C. Johnson, and she was released on parole. Then, two years later, Johnson granted Forrest King an unconditional pardon. And that is the story of Forrest King, Prisoner 15495. At the end of the month, I'll have a new episode for you guys. It'll be a longer one, and it'll involve a newer case than these historical murders that I cover in the middle of the month. So, until then...